The message this evening is entitled, Here We Go Again. Here we go again. I ask you tonight, do we ever ask that question when we're expecting something positive? I mean, it's just a very sarcastic phrase that we often say, right about, we're about, right about before we're about to do something that we're not really excited about. It's usually about something kind of boring. It's usually about something that we've been putting off. It's usually about something that we couldn't really care less about. Here we go again. We usually uh, we, we say things also similar to that as, another day, here comes more of the same, here's the same old, the grind, this is the monotony of it all. We say all these things connected to, here we go again. And today, as we continue with our series of Everyday Matters, we want to talk about the monotony of it all and how that relates to living on mission. And so I want to begin by asking you about a really important movie in cinematic history called Groundhog Day. Anyone remember Groundhog Day? It's a good movie. I'm, I'm you know, a little facetious about it, but you know, it's a good movie. If you, if you, if you haven't seen it, it's, about, uh, it's played by uh, the main character's Bill Murray, uh, who plays this guy named Phil Connors, who is kind of like this arrogant and egocentric Pittsburgh TV weatherman uh, who's covering the annual uh, Groundhog Day event in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania. And it's here that he finds himself like in this really weird time loop, repeating the same day over and over again. And the day is February 2nd, and the day begins at 6 o'clock in the morning uh, with the song, I Got You Bay" by Sonny and Cher every morning, right? And so he finds himself stuck in this day, and he's got to get out of it, and he doesn't know what to do, so he starts doing things that, like, you know, that please him, things that you know, are a lot of fun. He indulges in a lot of hedonism. Then he's just bored out of his mind. He just tries to figure out different elements of the day. And then he gets wildly depressed, and he tries to kill himself. And, and every day at 6 o'clock in the morning, he wakes up again, and the alarm clock um, says 6, six o'clock, and they, they're singing, I got you, babe, again. And the point of the movie uh, is that it forces him to reexamine his life and his purpose. The movie is a metaphor. And one of the questions it forces us as viewers to entertain is, what would you do if you had to live the same day over and over and over again? Now, some of us might respond, well, that's the thing. That pretty much is my life, doing the same thing over and over again, right? I wake up in the morning, I do my morning routine, you know, maybe you go to work, maybe you have, uh, you know, you have other needs that you need to take care of, other responsibilities. Uh, there may be carpooling involved, doctor's visits, rehab, uh, waiting in some sort of a line. Everybody has to wait in some sort of a line, and it's exhausting. Here we go again. I mean, is there any point to any of this? Does any of this mean anything? I'm a pastor. This is a church. This is a worship service. I'm supposed to say something very optimistic right now. I'm supposed to read some really cheerful Bible verses. The tempting thing for me as a preacher is to take the safe route and say stuff like, I know it may seem all routine and boring, but one day, friends, one day it's all going to make a difference. I would insert a really touching story of an elderly gentleman who's sitting on his deathbed telling me, looking me in the eye, telling me this great story, and he said to me, if I, w I wish I could do it all over again, because this time I'd enjoy it. I'd try to make you cry. I, I'd, you know, the, the room would swell up with this, just a tinge of guilt, because this, this is a really great cautionary tale. 
And then I would, um, you know, do what preachers do. I'd misquote scripture, and I would say things like, as Jesus said, carpe diem, seize the day. And I'd try to finish strong. But as with most of our preaching here at Grace Chapel, we would like to be as authentic as possible, and we would really like just to, to dig into the dirt of the monotony. We'd like to break the fourth wall, if you will. And I knew that tonight was... Um, I knew it was going to be easy to find a seat around here tonight, given, given Mother's Day. So I'd like to take the gloves off a little bit. And I'd love to encourage you also just to, just to relax and, and, and get into this. Uh, and do not resist the idea that, yes, your life may be a little boring and maybe a little monotonous, but there's goodness to be found. So you with me? Okay. So let's start off with Ecclesiastes chapter 1, which is one of the most depressing passages in the entire Bible, okay? And it reads, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and it hurries back to where it rises from. The wind blows to the south and then to the north and round and round it goes, ever going on its course all the streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, they will return again. All these things are wearisome. More than one can say, the eye never has enough seeing, nor the ear is full, full of hearing. Is there anything that someone can look and say, look, there's something new? No, it was here already long ago. It was long before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. And then verse 12 says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore wisdom and all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. And I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Finally, the Bible understands I mean, it's okay, you know, if you tuned out somewhere in, 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 in my reading of all of that, it's, it's pretty much just desperation and depression. It's all meaningless. There's no point to it all. I'm not sure if I'm ever really going to preach a more practical message than this one. I've been thinking about this, like, for, for, for weeks now. Uh, I spent probably about 20 hours on it this week and about 20 years prior to the idea of what to do with all this meaninglessness. And so tonight is comprised of some ranting, uh, tonight is comprised of some observance, some philosophy, if you will, and hopefully some encouragement from Scripture. So I want to ask you again, do you ever think of the life you could have had? I mean, we all have this existential crisis at one point or another, and the truth is we probably have a series of them. Some just last longer than others, and we have different ones throughout our lives. This is the philosophy part. Existentialism, existentialism. You know, those, those famous questions, why am I here? What purpose is my life supposed to make? Is there any point to my existence? Is any of this real? What should I do next? What is the life that you want? Now, I'm sure if I were to ask you, hey, shout out the life that you want, I would not get one single truthful answer. Because this is one of those things you just can't say out loud, right? You may not even be able to whisper it to the person that you trust the most in this life because it's just so, just so tangled. It is a complicated question. 
Surely there would be one really good Christian here that would say, I want to be more like Jesus. And we'd all roll our eyes at that person, right? <laughs> what is the life that you want? I mean, when I was, when I was young, when I, when I was a teenager, a young teenager, before I, before I discovered that I was going to be five foot seven for the rest of my life, I really wanted to be a professional athlete. I mean, like, I just thought, like, wow, like, this, that just looks so awesome, like, to hit the game-winning shot, to be in commercials, to be, like, to see yourself on a billboard. I used to love going to, a, like, to New York and, and Philadelphia. I got to live outside these northeastern cities, and I just used to love seeing the athletes on billboards and just, like, what that must feel like to be, a, to be that guy. I mean, and sometimes, like, you're not even, like, dressed at, in your jersey. Like, you're just, like, wearing a watch. Wow, the watch. I mean, like, that, is just, that just says, like, you're just really important. And then as I got older, I started seeing, like, the dark side of sports, and there's, like, really only one, like, you know, really awesome athlete like Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan had a rough time on, on certain things, didn't he? I mean, like, there was scandals, there was a lot of bad press, and, and there's just this dark side of professional sports. There's the business side of it, the hatred, the sports radio side of it, the social media. There's this thing, if you miss a shot or you, have a, you commit an error, you get to ruin an entire team, an entire championship, an entire World Series. Is this not the story of Bill Buckner? So then I thought about concerts, music, much safer. I mean, I love going to concerts. I love, my favorite part of any concert, sorry, not any, I don't like country music, but um, my favorite part of, of a concert is like, is like the, it was just like the live, the, just that energy that you have from like the people around you. I mean, like you just can't beat that. And when everybody around you is like singing your favorite song, right? And so like for me, like I love the band U2, and I've got to see U2 in concert a few times. Um, and God willing, they're going to be going on tour later on this year or next year. And God willing, I will be at this concert. And God willing, I will be singing at the end, one love, but we're not the same. We get to carry each other, carry each other, and everybody's going to sing, one love, and it's not going to matter that we were out of tune, it's just going to matter that there were thousands of people singing the same song together, right? And I think to myself, I wish I was Bono. I mean, wouldn't that be great? I mean, like, everybody just singing your song and just, like, inspiring, like, this incredible thing. And then I got to thinking, does Bono ever get tired of singing one? I mean, he's got to sing it the same way, with the same enthusiasm and the same energy and make it magical night after night after night. I mean, if you were to ask him, I'm sure he's going to say, no, I never get tired of it. Because if he's, he has to say no. Because if he says yes, he's going, to, he's going to ruin the magic of it, right? I think this is part of the curse of the rock and roll musician. Like, it's, it's, you've got to go to places like Cleveland and Kansas City and Pittsburgh and pretend to like it, Right? And for the audience member, it's like, hey, this is where we live. This is our home. Thanks for coming. But for, if you're a rock and roll musician, you can't wait to get out of there. Oh, man. I'm not trying to make you feel sympathetic for the rock and roll musician. I'm just trying to, get, I'm just trying to peel off the glamour of this life that we think we might want. I think the, the duplicity of Hollywood culture, like where you get like an Academy Award one day, and then the next day you're on the front of tabloids. Like there's an entire industry that has been created to make you look bad and to, and to distribute this information to as many people as possible. It should be no surprise to us that we lose so many of these celebrity types of things like drugs, alcoholism, and suicide. 
Maybe you'd prefer to be anonymous, but win the lottery. Admit it, at least to yourself. You often daydream about winning the lottery. I do. <laughs> Why do so many people that win the lottery end up with shortened lifespans? Why do so many end up divorced, bankrupt, addicted to drugs and alcohol and substance abuse and suicide? One economist suggests that um, there's this phenomenon called positive income shock. People tend to lose all perspective of life when they suddenly come to, come to so much money all at once and they lose a rhythm to their day. And when you lose the rhythm to, their, to your day, that's actually not solving the monotony. In fact, the absence of this rhythm and this meaning actually leads to a new monotony. That's pretty crazy. I could go on and on, and I could probably pick some really specific things rather than these like soft ones like celebrity culture. But there's pain and hardship and monotony in every life. Every life. Or maybe you just want your life just to be just a little bit easier than the one that you have. And you want to just get away from it all just, just a little bit. You ever go on vacation and like you finally get to the ocean and like, you know, there's there's the beach and your, your, your feet, your barefoot feet just hit the sand and, and like, you know, like there's, you hear the, the wave and it's peaceful and it's beautiful and you're just like thinking to yourself, oh, thank God, I'm finally here. I'm finally away from, from all of that stuff. I just finally get to relax and enjoy this beauty and enjoy this peace. Oh, and just be rejuvenated a little bit. I need more of this. And then Thursday comes. And you're still only a quarter of the way through the book that you were about to read. The people that you're vacationing with are on your last nerve. And even the ocean is annoying because it's loud and it's dirty and it's cold. And, and you turn around and you look at the resort that, you, that you've been staying at and you just deconstruct everything. And you just feel like you've just been totally ripped off and you can't wait to go home. Oh, those vacations. We find ourselves asking ourselves, like, I thought this was going to be a little bit better, but no, this is meaningless also, laundry baskets, traffic, piles of bills, the chores, the same old, same old, the monotony, here we go again. And so tonight, I would love for us to feel the tension, to not resist the fact that we have monotonous and sometimes boring lives. Because I want to force us to really look into the answer to this question that we're about to ask. What does a well-lived life look like? What does a well-lived life look like then? That's what the wisdom books of the Old Testament actually attempt to answer. And those books are the Psalms, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, and of course, the book of Proverbs. And I have to say, when, when, if I can kind of let you in a little bit of the back room of the conversations that we tend to have on staff, when Brian said that he was going to be preaching on Proverbs 31 uh, this morning, I'm like, oh no, Brian, don't do that. I mean, you don't want to do that on Mother's Day. Nobody, Mother's Day sermons and Proverbs 31 sermons, I don't know. And if I can be honest, like, I pretty much have that reaction to, like, a lot of our sermon meetings. Like, oh, I don't know if we want to do that one either or that one. Like, I'm, I'm really a pain in the neck uh, when it comes to that room. But I wanted to say, Brian, like, Proverbs 31, women hate that passage. I mean, it's just so predictable. It's cliche. I hate it. I'm not even a woman. And I know that I'm not doing that. 
And then Brian responded, and Brian just has like this magical thing that he does where like he just starts talking about something, and you're like, what a great idea. I should totally preach on Proverbs 31, and here we are. That's what we're going to be talking about. So a few things about the text. It's worth noting that the original audience of the book of, of, the book of Proverbs is young Jewish men. Okay? For whatever reason, that was lost on me for pretty much a long time, as I thought the book of Proverbs was just like, like most books of the Bible, read to the whole assembly of Israel. It's not. It was originally compiled for young Jewish men. And as you work yourself through the book, if you want to kind of like read through the book, you see all sorts of references to young men. And they're Jewish because that's only people reading Proverbs in the original audience. And so it's directed to a very specific demographic. It's in this light that Proverbs 31 makes a lot more sense, right, if it's about finding an ideal woman. But instead of coming off as a text of this is how all women should be, when you start reading it through the, proverb, through the eyes of the way the Proverbs was cre created, it becomes more of a collection of wisdom, and this part specifically is trying to regard amazing, the amazing womanhood, or this thing called amazing womanhood. So if you're re really interested in reading a little bit more about this, there's this really great book that I got to read last year uh, by Rachel Held Evans called A Year of Biblical Womanhood. Uh, and, and you don't have to be a woman to appreciate this book, I'm telling you. It's, it's a great book. She's intelligent. She's feisty, sarcastic, hilarious. And uh, she offers a really great picture of what it means to be a woman of valor today. But I, I feel like I need to say this, as I know countless women who just hate this passage, and they just feel that they that they are forced to measure themselves up against this passage. This is not a divine job description for wives and mothers. This is wisdom literature that everybody can profit from. And if I may say, it's not just women who sometimes don't like this passage uh, or don't find value in it. There's also guys like me who are already happily married, not Jewish, and not living 3,000 years ago. So why are we reading this tonight? Because... There's so much wisdom to be found here. And we can really get a really great angle of what it looks like to live a well-lived life. So read with me. Not, not, not out loud with me, just like in your head with me, I mean to say. Just avoid any confusion. Verse 1, the sayings of King Lemuel, an inspired utterance his mother taught him. Listen, my son, listen, son of my womb. Listen, my son, the answer to my prayers. Do not spend your strength on women your vigor on those who ruin kings. So looking at this passage, the first thing we would ask, who is King Lemuel? I've never heard of him. Can't find him anywhere in Scripture. Well, it could be a play on words, uh, meaning for the king or those who belong to God. Uh, it could be like a sort of like a nickname for Solomon. Uh, but it could also be for those who are following after Solomon. Young kings, young princes, uh, other nobles and other royalties. I think a good rabbi would say, it could be you, it could be me. But he's referring to the idea that we cannot chase after hedonism and a life of sensuality. Verse 4, it is not for kings, Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, not for rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed, and deprive all the oppressed of their rights. Let beer be for those who are perishing, wine for those who are in anguish, let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Now, there's this odd section on alcohol. <laughs> Wish we could spend a little bit more time on it. Uh, but the, the summary is that, not that alcohol is evil. Um, in the ancient world, alcohol is definitely not evil. 
Um, remember the guy, Jesus, who had that really great miracle of changing the water into wine, and, and the Apostle Paul, like, you know, the ambassador of Christianity, who, who loved wine so much that like, when his young disciple Timothy had an upset stomach, told him, drink more wine. So, so that's not, the alcohol isn't evil. And even with my appreciation for alcohol, we have to find some practical wisdom here. Drinking it for enjoyment and recreation is one thing. Drinking it for escape, that's another. Drinking for escape, that's abuse. That's what leads to this perishing and the poverty and the misery that's being described above. I'm sure you get it. We'll move on. Verses 8 and 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves and for the rights of those who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. A well-lived life, now we're talking. Advocate for those in need. Remember those who are marginalized. Remember all this, this idea that it's not about you, so use your power, your strength, your goodness, whatever energy you have, your time to serve others. wish we could spend a little more time on that. And I wish we could spend more time like, just kind of detailing, but it is 31 verses, and I really want you to see the whole of it. And we get to this part, the real fun part, the part about women. Verses 10 begins, A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. And what he's talking about, what the, what the, what the proverb is talking about here is, this is all about trust and blessing. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She's industrious. She's hardworking. She's carpooling the kids, and she probably sells stuff on Pinterest, right? Verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that, she sees that her, her trading is profitable, and her lamp does not go out at night. Again, we're talking about her hard work ethic. She's savvy with opportunity and about finances and about future. If I can digress a little bit. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting, the word verse six, uh, for, for, um, the verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. Um, women could, in the ancient world could not, own, uh, ancient, uh, could not own property, and so this idea of buying it could mean that she has dominion over it, not actually like, you know, the deed um, to it. Um, but there is kind of like a really socially progressive thing going on in this, in this text. Verse 19 to 21 in her hand, she holds the, the staff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. And when it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. And what is that saying? She's caring for her family and those in need. She is a symbol of strength. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She's clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She is modest. She's respectable. She's wise. She's faithful with her time. We, we, we keep getting this message. And then the last section. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done and let the works bring her praise at the city gate. She is recognized and celebrated. One of my favorite things about this passage is 
This is one of the few images of prosperity that I can really respect. Man or woman. I mean, it, it is just a, an incredible passage of what the prosperous life, and I don't just mean a financially prosperous, I mean like a balanced, rich life looks like. Rich in relationships, rich in faithfulness, rich in community, rich in what I would describe as righteousness. One theologian says, the woman here is personifying not only God's righteousness and wisdom, but this passage is also representing a vision of home, of ideal society, and of good people. Whatever it is, I wish it were describing my life. I mean, this is not a checklist for the perfect wife. This is a portrait. This is poetry. This is art. And it's art that gives truth. And again, it's about prosperity and what a well-lived life looks like. So I ask you tonight, what do you want your life to look like? We might think again, well, I just want it just to be a little bit better than it is now. And that's a really safe answer, right? Like you get to kind of own your, your life a little bit. You, 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 don't, you don't have that superficialness of like, you know, I want to be Bono or I want to be a celebrity athlete or something like that. I, I just want to be me because we've been told our whole lives that you're supposed to be yourself, right? But I really want to call that out, a little bit better version of my life because I think if we were to chase that rabbit down, that we would find ourselves in a very similar routine, maybe just a little bit better circumstantially, but we'd still be bored. We'd still find life monotonous if things were just a little bit better. It's just like asking the opposite of the question. What if things were just a little bit worse? What do you want your life to look like? What Bill Murray finds at the end of Groundhog Day, yes, we're going back to Groundhog Day. <laughs> what he finds at the end is not what he thought he was going to find, right? Everything that he thought was, that was going to make him happy literally failed him. It's only after that he understood the sacrificial nature of love the beauty of helping others, and the need to understand who he really was, only then was he able to see the next day, February 3rd, right? Is this not the heaven that God promises us? What? Is this not the heaven that God promises us and more? To be in a relationship, to be in community, to experience wholeness, to be the people that we were created to be? To be a part, of a, a part of a world where nothing is broken or stained, I mean, that is the essence of God's presence. That is what it means to be in heaven. Friends, sometimes the problem is not monotony. Sometimes it's just the simple discontentment of life. As in, I just hate it all sometimes. I mean, don't you ever feel that feeling sometimes? You're just like, I just can't stand this another minute. This is not what I thought it was going to be. I just, because you run out of words to say, right? You ever wish that you had somebody else's life? So you just make one up? Has this ever happened to you? You ever meet somebody who's completely new and somebody that you'll probably never meet again? And they ask you what you do for a living and you, uh, they ask you for your name and they ask you what you do for a living and you lie about both. And you have this overwhelming, overwhelming temptation just to keep going and just to keep lying and just keep going on with this completely different life. Because it's part fantasy and it's part fun, but you also just really hate saying who you really are and what you do. I learned this 
I learned a strategy actually from my wife. Um, yeah, my wife Susan, right over here. Um, she, she told me that when a weird guy would come up to her and talk to her and ask her for her name, um, she said it, the secret is actually to be really friendly because she learned that weird guys are really hard to get away, away from. They don't go away easily. So when asked for her name, she'd tell them, my name's Marcia, or Samantha, or Catherine, or Amy. Oh, it's nice to meet you. Where are you from? Pierre, South Dakota. You should come visit me sometime. <laughs> well, there I was in Pierre, South Dakota, looking for Marcia. And it turns out that Susan's from Florida. It was very awkward the following semester when I approached her about that. Years later, I found myself, actually, during my first pastorate, and upon saying that I was a pastor, I would discover a few things. People would say this, one of these following things after hearing that I was a pastor. They'd say, oh, you're so young. And then they'd say, oh, is that a wedding ring? I didn't think you guys could get married. Or they would say, are you a real pastor? And then the last one hurt the most. A pastor? Oh, Conversation over. And so the only people that really wanted to talk to me about my job uh, were the really annoying people. And so I started taking my wife's approach towards the annoying people, and I tell them, my name is Jack, and I'm a toll booth collector. And the conversation would usually be over. Now, to the people that I wanted to engage in conversation with, I mean, I had a lot of, I had a lot of, a lot of jobs. I was probably still Jack, but I was a teacher, or a social worker, or I worked in a nonprofit, or I was a guidance counselor. Um, and I want, if I wanted to pretend that I was wealthy and successful, I would tell them that I was part of a startup software company, because from 1995 to 2005, that's where that you could say that like, with like, pretty much, and get away with it. And somebody would ask me, like, are you a programmer? And of course, I don't know anything about programming, so I'd say, no, I'm the numbers guy. Oh, that's so exciting. I wish I was a part of a startup. Yeah, it's really great. Welcome to GC at Night, where we teach you how to lie. <laughs> so I went through this whole episode, you know, through, through, through this time, and, and looking back on it before Facebook and all that, it, it's surprising how easy it is to have a dual identity. But there were a few problems, right? The big one, the problem of, of conscience. And there's also the part of, in Scripture where, you know, where, you, where Jesus says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father, right? Like, that, that doesn't help me either. But let's say that wasn't in there. When you lie about who you are, it's because you don't like who you are, right? And what you do and what you're about. And I also, like the second problem, the other really big problem is that these jobs, I would probably find to be monotonous also. Though noble and good to be a teacher or a social worker or a guidance counselor or to be part of a startup, I bet you if I had one of those jobs, I'd probably find myself lying and pretending to be something else also. And I probably find myself thinking it's all meaninglessness. And I find myself pretty much where I am now. So if we want to enjoy, if we want to enjoy this life and find meaning in it and find purpose in it, we better use the things like wisdom and the search for truth. Otherwise, we will have lived the life of a fool. Because here's the weird thing about monotony. It could be a curse. It could be blessing. Or, oh sorry, it could be a curse, it could be a problem, or it could be a blessing. And I'll explain. Finding meaning in the life of monotony, in, in, finding, find, excuse me, finding meaning in monotony, a couple suggestions. One, be faithful. 
I think of Colossians 3, 15 to 17, and the message translation really works well in the idea of being faithful. Let the peace of Christ keep you in tune with each other, in step with each other. None of this is going off and doing your own thing and cultivate, th- and cultivate thankfulness. Let the word of Christ, the message, have the run of the house. Give it plenty of room in your lives. Instruct and direct one another using good common sense. And sing. Sing your hearts out to God. Let every detail in your lives, words, actions, and whatever, be done in the name of the Master Jesus, thanking God the Father every step of the way. I mean, this idea of faithfulness takes on a a completely different light to me. Because instead of the same thing being the same thing over and over, faithfulness then becomes an opportunity to be a really good steward of what God has entrusted us with. I mean, if you think about it, when you have the same thing over and over and over again, there's a, there's a, there's a luxury to that pattern. When you have a, a, a pile of laundry, it sort of means that you're well provided for. It means that you're wearing new clothes, clean-smelling clothes, pretty much every day. And it may be a task like to, to, to clean it and fold it and all that stuff, but there's luxury in that. And where there's luxury, there's also the opportunity to share, which we'll get to in a second. But the second thing is, the first is be, be faithful. The second is be creative in the monotony. Everyday things that could be done better, you can bring efficiency and beauty and kindness to it. When you find yourself in monotony, you can bring creativity towards it. There's a great line that I, that I found somewhere. It says, a hunch is your own creativity trying to tell you something. A hunch is your creativity trying to tell you something. We have hunches, don't we? We sometimes have hunches in the middle of the day on a Tuesday that just tells us, you know, I, I, I just think this could be better. Use your creativity. And lastly, in responding to monotony, be selfless. Second Peter tells us, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. And St. Francis of Assisi says, above all the grace and the gifts that Christ gives to his beloved is that of overcoming self. Of all the gifts, the grace of overcoming self is the greatest. Be selfless. Again, the opportunities that we have in this life, in this consistent pattern, these everyday luxuries that we have, that really becomes an opportunity to be sharing, to be generous, to be kind, to be benevolent. It's a good thing. Be selfless. We can find meaning in the monotony of life by being faithful, creative, and selfless. And this is also the very picture of Proverbs 31. I mean, she's creative. She's selfless. She's faithful. I think of my own wife when I I think of this as well. This idea of faithfulness and creativity and selflessness. And here's the thing that we get to whenever we, we get a list of something. Depending on your personality type, you're going to, and I'm going to frame like two different pieces of advice that are completely opposite from each other because you're going to hear, depending on your personality type, you're going to hear this in a different way. If you're the type that feels urgency in just about everything, the, need to, the person that needs to get it right the first time, the person who cannot accept failure, and the worst thing in the world to you is another failure, 
I want to encourage you, monotony is not failure. And this idea of having to be faithful, creative, and selfless in the monotony, it takes, it's a process. And praise God we get many chances to figure it out. They're moving targets. And I would love to encourage you to catch your breath and find a sustainable rhythm. Now, if you're the type who doesn't really care about much, you're really laid back, and you still think that monotony is the curse, but I'd like to say to you, maybe a little urgency is good for you. Maybe you need someone to tell you that you really can take steps that will make things better for you and for the people around you. And so you too do not be afraid of the monotony. And so what do we want our lives to look like? Well, remembering that boredom is a form of discontentment in the present, what do we want things to look like? And in, in, in an effort of, uh, I think I've been very transparent in telling you like how I lie and, and cheat and, and, and all these sorts of things. Um, if, I, if I can just share a little bit of how I figured it out in, in the life of the ministry. I mean, there was a time I wasn't sure I wanted to stay in ministry. And I thought to myself things like, I don't know if I want to be in ministry. Later on, I thought like, you know, I'm not really the type of husband or father that I really want to be. I'm not really the type of son that I think I should be. This is not what I thought my life would look like. You know, I kind of, you know, we all have these thoughts to some degree. It helps if we're honest with ourselves. And I believe the mystery to the question is unraveled in times of prayer. I mean, like, real times of prayer. And I find that, like, I pray really well in traffic. Not because I'm, I'm, I'm righteous or holy or whatever, but, like, I just find that, like, I'm, I'm like, really honest in traffic. I can't stand this guy in front of me, the guy behind me is tailgating, and I just need some perspective, and like my heart is just like ready to pray. God, I just need some help here. God, I'm really frustrated with it all. God, is this, 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 and this. It's amazing how, how clarity can be found in such moments. Because you're confronting, good prayer confronts pain. Good prayer confronts the isolation. Good prayer confronts loneliness. And that's where we find hope. That's where we find peace and strength. There's always going to be traffic. There's always going to be the job. There's oh, in my life, there's always going to be diapers and unread books and million things that like, I, I just wish that I could do. But the difference these days, I think, is the opportunity to contribute to my family, to my church, and to my community. And there's stewardship in that. There's like when you take the monotony of it all and you say, hey, I can contribute to this. I can be faithful with this. I can be creative with this. I can be even selfless with this if God gives me strength. I find a lot of meaning in that. And I wish to pass that on to you if it's helpful. I've been thinking a lot about Mother's Day. And it's such a tricky day. I mean, for the beginning part of my life, it was a really wonderful day. And I'm, and I'm, I'm among the fortunate to say this. But there were dear friends of mine who, have not, who did not have the relationship they, that they would have wanted with their mom. And I remember throughout years of our infertility and through a series of tragedies and misfortunes, days like Mother's Days and Christmas, I mean, were just so taxing and so difficult. And then there, were, there, was, there, there was like the first Mother's Day that, 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 that we had as a, as a family. And... And I remember I, 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 I was praying this week of people who are experiencing their very first Mother's Day. 
And then I, I'm sobered by the fact that for some people, this is their first Mother's Day without their mom, and they're grieving, and they're going through a time of loss. I mean, it's, an, it's amazing how this day brings up so many different types of thoughts and feelings and all the complication associated with this day. And you probably know what I mean. So I ask, could one of the ways that we respond to Mother's Day is to simply be people who, uh, of, of prayer and pray for all the moms who are in many different seasons of life and circumstances? Could we pray for all the women in, 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 a, in a similar way? And then I also ask, is it possible that another way to, to take advantage of the opportunities that we have, whether they be monotonous or dramatic, is to find ways to bless and encourage and serve the other? Man, I really think that we'd make better use of this day and days like these and days like tomorrow and the ones after if we did these, these types of things. And so, friends, we can apply so much of what the Scriptures are teaching and so much of what God is showing us if we do truly live faithfully, creatively, and selflessly. We can find that there is meaning in the monotony of it all by being those things, faithful, creative, selfless. We can do that today. We can do that tomorrow. We can do it every time we say, here we go again. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we come to you with many different things on our minds. And we do thank you for, for the big questions. And we thank you, Lord, for the space that we get to, to kind of parse through some of it all. Father, we pray that you'd be with us and, and with those who, who find themselves in, in, in desperate moments. We pray that you'd use us to encourage them to maybe bring some perspective but mostly, Lord, we pray that you, your light would, would break through somehow. We pray that for people who are really searching for more, that they would find you in a very powerful and obvious way. Father, we ask the same for us. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to experience you in a very powerful and real and beautiful way. Thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us through Scripture. Thank you for guiding us by your Spirit. And thank you for meeting us here tonight. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.